0: Hey, this is Ed Gerdy from the Band of Heathens, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology.
1: DIY and Howe Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And Rock and Roll. Now... On with the show. Hello, fellow diggers, and welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco today. So, hey, thank you all for joining us. In deeper digs, we go a little further and dig a little deeper into specific topics that tie in with rock and roll history, the music, the culture, and the technology. It's the companion show to our episodic overview of rock history, the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. If you're not listening to that, you are really missing out. All of our podcasts, show notes, and more are available online at rockandrollarchaeology.com. We just recently spruced it up, and uh, among other things, we made it more friendly, more uh, available to mobile devices. So, you know, please stop by. Uh, We are really, really excited to announce that our podcasts are available on a couple of new platforms. Well, new for us, anyway. Uh, That's Pandora and Spotify. Uh, if you are fans of theirs, you can find us there. Got it? Good. Friends, if you'd like to contribute to the RNRa, uh, it's real easy to do and much appreciated. Simply click on the "Support the Shows" tab on top of our main website page. From there, you can go to our Patreon page, or if you would like to pick up some awesome rock and roll archaeology swag, <laughs> follow the link to T Public. Once again, rockandrollarchaeology.com. Finally, if you enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend all about rock and roll archaeology. Thank you. Okay, so that takes care of the housekeeping. Uh, Let's get into another edition. record can mean a whole lot of different things Uh, a lot of times it simply means person who came up with the financing for the project but uh, at the other end of the spectrum it can mean someone who is very hands-on closely partnered with the artist on every step or something in between our guest today is john simon and he's one of those hands-on producers among other things, John has worn a lot of different hats during his five plus decades in rock and roll. He produced the band's first two records, their auspicious 1968 debut, Music from Big Pink, and the self titled second album, The Band, which we certainly consider one of rock music's all time masterpieces. He produced uh, another late 60s uh, masterpiece, Simon Garfunkel's Bookends. John was at the helm for Janis Joplin's uh, first efforts on uh, Columbia Records, uh, Cheap Thrills uh, with Big Brother and the Holding Company. He helped break out Leonard Cohen, uh, and he was just getting started. He's a terrific keyboardist with many credited and uncredited studio appearances over the years. John is also an accomplished recording artist in his own right, uh, with a small but dedicated following over the decades. He's written a play, he's lectured at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, and he still gigs every Thursday night in Ellenville, New York, uh, with his piano-jazz trio. October 1st of 2018 saw the publication of John Simon's book, Truth, Lies, and Hearsay, a memoir of a musical life in and out of rock and roll. We'll discuss John's new book and more today. We've got some ground to cover got a lot to talk about, so let's do this. Let's meet John Simon.
2: Baby's on the road again Wearing different clothes again Baby's picking up a buck To suit his simple needs All his goods are sold again His words as good as gold again. You see me now ask her, please to pity me. Mean I've been running long since that day down in the house when my mind went drifting on where my feet grew as soon. To Shut
1: the door. Welcome to Deeper Diggs in Rock, John Simon. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing fine, Christian. Thanks for asking.
1: All right, all right. So let's get into it. Uh, okay, so which is most important when telling a great story? Truth, lies, or hearsay? Gee, um, hearsay always makes the best story. <laughs> I hearsay thought. makes the best story. Okay, okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, truth, of course. I, I value truth above everything. Lies, uh, lies are pretty shady. You know, I really, uh, I, I really get upset when I find out something's a lie that I thought was true. But sometimes lies work great. I'm, you know, uh, I'm guilty of lying in my professional life. Um, for instance, the, part of the big lies was that the Cheap Thrills album was a live album, which it wasn't. The Cheap Thrills album with Janis Toplin and Big Brother and the Holy right, Cup. Right,
1: right, Yeah, yeah. With some hits on there. Yeah. yeah number, that's a number one album.
2: It was intended to be a live album, and in fact, there was so much talk about it being a live album that we were in a corner. We had to do a live album, but then Albert Grossman, who was managing Big Brother among all time, other, right. other right. wonderful acts that he managed, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Albert and I went out to San Francisco to sort of hear what the band sounded like. They had a reputation for, you know, wowing the crowds, and indeed, they did but on a record mistakes live forever and their performance was rife with mistakes you know in a live performance the mistakes are forgotten the second after they occur so we had to do an album that was that could be played over and over again without hearing the same mistakes and still retain the live sound so we faked it we uh, did it in the studio and we
1: uh, added the audience had a big we added well
2: we added a big we had a huge room columbia's old 30th street studio and we moved uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, coughed, (laughs) moved chairs around, and, uh, you know, clapped, clapped a little bit. Then we added a lot of applause from the actual show. So the applause was live. (laughs) The performances weren't, except for one song, except for
1: uh, Ball and Chain, which was the only song from the audition period that we were able to keep on the album. Oh, with the excruciating guitar solo at the beginning.
0: Yes, I guess
1: so <laughs> That's your adjective, not mine <laughs> It's a little tough, it's a little tough Uh listened to that song several times recently We're using it in our upcoming uh, episode Called East of Eden and, uh, uh, Which does a little focus on uh, on Janice uh, Specifically with Big Brother and the holding company So um, so i, I got to ask about Janice Joplin Since you brought her up here Because she is without doubt One of the greatest voices of the 20th century So what are your recollections of her?
2: Well well, I used to say that Janice coated her outside with peculiar, inside with Southern comfort. <laughs> she was a poster child in the hate, Haight, hate Ashbury, and she could bump into her friends on the street or in Golden Gate Park, and they would be, Hi, Janice, and everybody knew her for who she really was. But yeah. once she got super famous and on the cover of all these magazines, she could not leave her hotel room or walk through an airport without, without involved, being, right. Yes, yeah, swamped yeah, by fans. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, she. She didn't have a life of her own anymore, and she took to drugs and went the fate of so many big celebrities. And because we as humans can't seem to leave them alone, even though we understand that that, uh, our fandom is an intrusion upon their lives, you know?
1: Well, it's also a—we're attracted to a very specific part of that person and not the whole. Uh, And they may not even be that person once they step off the stage.
2: Right, right,
1: absolutely. But still, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, we are uh, attracted like uh, moths to the flame.
2: Sure, you see someone on the street. You say, "My God, is that so and so?" I can't believe i have actually seeing that person. I want to get closer and see. You know,
1: yeah, maybe, if they some have bit, any maybe, maybe some will rub off or. Uh... Uh, Yeah. You know, uh, I I can capture some of that lightning uh, in some way or another. Yeah. Uh, Or or to 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 your point, uh, you know, maybe they they, maybe they don't stand up to uh, to what uh, what the fantasy is. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, Give us the uh, the John Simon origin story. So um, uh, you grew up in Connecticut, right?
2: I grew up in Norwalk, Connecticut, and I was there through my high school years, yep.
1: Yeah, and uh, when did you start uh, paying attention to music, or was it always in the family?
2: It was always in the family in the person of my father. was an amateur violinist and composer, and a good one because he was the concertmaster of the local symphony orchestra, but when he was uh, in NYU, he decided uh, he would spend the summer uh at juilliard and he went there and he said there were little kids who could play circles around him so he decided he better pick a more <laughs> lucrative career and he became a surgeon <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, right. but he always there was always music in the house you know he he got me playing piano first actually a little violin when i was four years old but yeah. that was so scratchy that uh i moved on to the piano and
1: um oh did, did the violin just not uh please your ear no, I didn't what did I know? I was 4. Uh <laughs> but still, I mean, you know, you you might have said, "Oh, eh, I don't like that. I, uh, I prefer the, the- I I don't know. I I don't know. Uh mm-hmm. maybe maybe so. Mm-hmm.
2: My memory is not too specific when I go that far back, you know. Yeah. yeah of course. But um so, you know, I just kept into into music and I went to the, the route of every kid who had piano teachers playing my Hannon and Czerny and Mozart and Beethoven and me moving along. And I got, when I was a teenager, I, I wanted to uh, to learn how to play some pop music, you know. So I had this great uh, teacher that my father turned me on to. His name was Andy Word, And uh, he would come to the house and he had played in a lot of la- uh, Latin bands. So he taught me a lot of latin rhythms and he taught me how to play stride piano and how to play boogie woogie piano and i was off and he taught me how to read sheet how to read the lead sheets you know and just play uh, songs just from the melody and the chords and that was a great joy and then um i also played you know horns and things like that in uh in uh, junior high school and high school bands and since my father was a concertmaster of this orchestra i would often sit as a little kid, sit in the middle of the orchestra during rehearsals and just hear what was going on. And when I got to be older, I got to play percussion stuff and uh, and uh, piano with that orchestra when it was needed.
1: Yeah, and, so it was definitely you know, in the blood.
2: Boy, I'll say it was you know, it was in my life quite a lot. Mm-hmm. and I But I never practiced much because <laughs> I would much rather go out and play baseball with my pals than practice because I, I had a good enough ear so that when I uh, – this is before Andy were in the pop stuff, when I was doing classical stuff. I would be given a new section of a piece to read through in front of my piano teacher. And then I wouldn't look at it until the next week when I'd see it for the second time. And because I just had a good enough ear to be able to fake my way th- through it, you know?
1: Oh, so you, you didn't really need to practice is what you're
2: saying. Yeah, but, you know... I would have I would have gone a lot farther had I practiced. <laughs> of
1: course. Well, <clears throat> yeah, maybe you would have been a concert pianist.
2: That would have been a drag. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So let's change the, the let's change the record. Tell me about the New England Music Camp.
2: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is all in my uh, book. You, you're, I can tell that you you've read this book because it has to be questions out of this book. For, and for listeners, they, a fun know that book. they can...
1: it's a fun book, yes.
2: Good. It's called Truth, Lies, and Hearsay, and you can get it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. End of plug. Um, yeah, so I, when I was 15, before I could drive, I went to uh, New England music camp, and I studied there with a real German taskmaster, Liesl Braun, who uh, really let me know how much you did have to practice in order to be a uh, – you know, a decent pianist, and um, so that was that. And I got in, I got uh, kicked out of camp.
1: Oh yes, uh, uh, something with a blackboard. Uh,
2: yeah, I don't very, know. If I, well, very I, can, Bart I can Simpson. I can say this: very Bart Simpson. Yeah, you know, I've always been a trickster, and I love and I love shake things up, and I love comedy. You know, so I walked. Passed this teaching cabinet, a blackboard in it, and the questions for an exam the next day were written there. And it was a fill in the blanks kind of quiz. And so, being a little troublemaker as I was, I filled in the blanks with every dirty word a 15 year old wise ass would know. Like the wind instruments consist of the Vagina and penis families, I filled oh. in. It. Oh. The indication. Yes. Yes, the they indication do. I believe they do. Uh, <laughs> you <know what> you <laughs> really? And the indication, vivace, means fuck you. Oh. You know? <laughs> so I got kicked out
1: of <laughs> Oh, how, how did your dad take that? I don't think he really knew
2: why. Oh, maybe I told him. I, I, my dad was also had a great sense of humor too. We used to ah, we used to okay. sit and watch all Again, the sitcoms on the TV movie. together.
1: Right. uh uh-huh.
2: You know. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he you know, boys will be boys kind yeah, of stuff, I yeah, guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But uh 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 it's it was beginning to sound like you're not headed to Juilliard uh, uh either here.
2: No. He, he you know, he um the wonderful thing about my parents as far as my uh, professional life was, they never pressured me into anything. It just said, "Whatever you want to do, if you have a passion for it, go ahead and do it." So, um,
1: great advice.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So when I uh, graduated from college, I had a couple of job offers. One was to write Anison commercials for Ted Bates Advertising Agency, and the other one was to be a trainee. Well, I have no idea what that was for Columbia Records, and they both paid eighty-five dollars a week. So I took the one, you know, the Columbia Records one, and that. From That's then on, I, think on. That,
1: I know, yeah, that,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah. Then on, things happened.
1: We'll yeah. get there in a second. But back to that music camp. So you did come back, and you learned something about yourself. I, <clears throat> I think that you find that you know you were definitely creative, obviously funny, uh, and uh, you just didn't give a shit about the rules.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I mean, I've always been a little bit of an iconoclast
1: hmm mm-hmm. uh, So, did you start working, like, in bands when you were a teen, about the same time, 15, 16, and then you, you start working the strip club circuit? Is that right?
2: Just one particular strip club. Just yeah, one, one particular uh, the, the strip club. <laughs> particular oh. strip club. But I think yeah. it was just one gig until—this was even before Music mm-hmm. Campus. I think after my— parents found out that it was a strip club
1: that was it. I'd never <laughs> played there again yeah <laughs> all right right
2: uh, but the yeah. one really cool thing about it was that the drummer was horace silver's uh, ex-drummer and Horace silver was also from norwalk connecticut and i was just so thrilled to be playing with the same drummer who had played with horace you
1: know oh, i bet that yeah,
2: was just yeah. great
1: yeah uh so we go from the strip club uh to princeton
2: yeah eventually yeah yeah i wrote a couple of musicals in high school and oh, that got me into Princeton in. okay. sort of yeah okay.
1: yeah that's that, that's pretty prestigious uh university how did that help shape you
2: well it polished me a lot I, I came from a high school that was like Greece you know and um in some respects and Princeton was a, this uh, tradition where a lot of kids came from prep schools at least oh, yeah, school. that's,
1: so this is very Ivy League yes
2: yeah, very Ivy League, and so it polished me. I learned a lot of social grace, and I I learned not to write, not to fill in the blanks. With um, penis and vagina? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although we did, we get we got into trouble for sure. I mean, um, this organization at Princeton is called the Princeton Triangle Club, and they wrote original musicals every year. Every year a new show was written, and we toured it around the country. It's similar
1: to during, like the Harvard Lampoon, right?
2: Harvard Lampoon was a—that's a, that's a uh, publication. The Princeton Triangle Club was an actual live show on stage. Ah. The Harvard Hasty Pudding Club Hasty was, a, Pudding. was their yes. that was their uh, yes. Yes. live show thing. Mm. But this had an incredibly long tradition, going all the way back to uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and uh, yeah, Booth Tarkington and Jimmy Stewart and Jose Ferrer. These people were all members of the Triangle. Brooke Shields, even, were members of the Triangle Club. So we would, you know. Pull into these towns, and uh, the local—it was always debutante season. This, because this goes away, this tradition goes way back, and it's are really snooty people. Not, not a, a class of people that I was really familiar with at all. But here we were. We were supposed to be the convenient stag line who would be uh, president of all these debutante parties to, uh, you know, get, have a dancer to these terminally overdressed uh, young debutantes. And, and that was it, you know. but So we pull into the, each one of these towns. We went by train, which is fabulous. We went by Pullman train, which is like those, like you saw in the movie Some Like It Hot, those, you know, burps.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah the sleepers. Yeah,
2: yeah sleepers. Mm-hmm. So we pull into town, and the first thing that happened would be the alumni local alumni club would take us to a cocktail party and get us totally soused. <laughs> and then... We'd go and somehow pull it together to do a show, and then we'd uh, get into our monkey suits, our tuxedos, uh-huh. and go to these debutante grand cotillion ballroom things and go through the receiving lines, and we'd always try to whisper the most embarrassing things possible to the debutantes in the lines to see if we could break <laughs> them up. Or... We were just trying to make trouble, oh, you know? Yeah. Then when the band, the, the, the band, I mean, they would these society orchestras. They would play in cardboard imitation sound of a cardboard sounding orchestra. They were awful, you know, and uh, so when they would take a break, we would leap up onto the bandstand and uh, take their instruments and try to play something, and then we'd have brothers and boyfriends of these debutantes chase us around and, uh, you know, we'd eventually leave it, but that was crazy and and wonderful and fun, and we'd go from one town to the next town and, and it was it was really nuts. It was my first taste of actually being on the road, you know yeah And yeah, that yeah, was great
1: yeah 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 i uh, an ivy league education at its finest you i, I do want <laughs> you to uh to uh uh tell us a little bit about a professor that you mentioned in your book uh Babbitt.
2: Uh, yeah. Milton Babbitt. Milton Babbitt was a huge influence in my life. I talk about two Miltons in my book. Milt Lyon, who was the director of the Triangle Club and taught me so much about how to write for theater. And Milton Babbitt, who was uh, one of the first really, how can I say, famous? I don't know. One of the skillful uh, serial composers in America. Um, you know, moving along from Schoenberg and Alban Berg and all these uh, Viennese composers. And Milton was this uh, small guy with a huge bass voice who would never uh, pause, as I am doing, in his speech. Never said, uh, or but, or what, or, you know, never, never did any of this stuttering and stammering that I'm doing. Any normal person might do. Spoken complete paragraphs extemporaneously, and um, he was just wonderful and wild and so proficient, and we didn't study serial music and modern music. We studied out of Bach chorale books to learn the proper way to harmonize things and um, harmony and counterpoint. And that was fabulous. And and Milton was, you know, he was very adventurous too. There was a, this is also hearsay, but it's very possible to be true that when Ornette Coleman was in the New York City, that Babbitt went in and sat in with him. And that's also very possible. Knowing who he was, he was very respected and uh, a great, a great guy, a great guy, a legend.
1: Yeah, it sounds like he was quite a mentor to you. That uh, you took a lot away uh, from uh, from working with him.
2: Oh, I did. Yeah, I did. I was very. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about uh, harmonization,
1: yeah, and- yeah, which will come yeah. into play later as we as we go through the story. So, so uh, uh, as you said, uh, we graduate in 1963, and uh, you have a choice of uh, going to work uh, for an ad agency writing copy, uh, or uh, a uh, trainee, uh, an assistant of an assistant producer, if you will, uh, <laughs> at Columbia uh, under uh, Goddard Lieberson, right?
2: Right. right. Very so first, far under. Very question. far under. Uh, there were quite a few layers between Goddard and me.
1: Well, first question. Did he really refer to himself as God?
2: He did not refer to himself as God, no. Uh, I don't think anybody really referred to himself as... He was very well respected. Nobody put him down that way. Yeah. The only thing... Uh, we uh, when I the, the year I got there, it was Goddard's... I don't know if his birthday or his anniversary of working at the company, but with the project that I was put on was assembling this tribute package for him that was both um, letters and audio recordings from people. And we referred to it as G-L-A-K, which was the gutter, Lieberson, Askes, I called it. But uh, he didn't need that. Goddard was a very, very erudite and dignified and talented.
1: Oh, a real legend! Yeah. Man, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, he
2: was quite, mm-hmm. quite the guy. The old school of uh, record executives. He was not a lawyer and or an accountant. He was a composer. You know, he was a musician, and mm-hmm. uh, he. Uh, so there you. It go. sounds I mean,
1: like a good place for you to land then.
2: It was a wonderful place to land. I've been very lucky. I've gone from one great place to another great place, you know? Mm -hmm. And that that was a wonderful place to be. It was just when rock and roll was coming in, and uh, Columbia was very slow to to, uh, get into rock and roll because most of their meat and potatoes were the, you know, mainstream pop stars. uh, Tony Bennett and Andy Williams and Barbara Streisand and Doris Day. I mean, the list went on forever, you know?
1: So you're brought on as an assistant-assistant producer, right?
2: Something like that yeah I, I don't even think my title was that uh, you know lofty
1: did you, fall right did you did you feel like uh like oh yeah I can do this this is this is, this is this is this is a passion uh you know yeah
2: stopping, yeah stopping I, from- I mean I I loved it I, I knew what a record producer was I knew the record producer was the person who uh, was responsible for getting a record done
1: yeah the project
2: I mean, manager, uh, yeah sort of a project manager, right but record producers you know each one of us is a different person depending on what our background is. Um, some record producers are engineers i I uh, don't know an old from a volt, really you know yeah but uh, well, I think but I'm an ar-
1: I'm you uh, taught you quite a lesson on what a producer's job was and uh, uh, there's a little story you tell about getting in trouble with those guys with whom the ibew the international oh,
2: electrical yeah. workers no, no no it wasn't the ibew it's afm oh american american federation of musicians oh no no ibew yeah that that's when you i wasn't allowed to touch anything yeah, in the studio uh, were. yeah that's that's the ibew that's I wasn't allowed to touch any equipment but my tr- my trouble came uh, with my own parent union the American Federation of Musicians which I joined way back when I played for that strip club so i had been a member for years Mm -hmm. uh, before I joined Columbia Records and one of my first jobs at Columbia Records was to produce an album by a wonderful uh, film composer named Kenyon Hopkins it was an album of a uh, score for a TV show that he did and in the studio were all of my favorite jazz idols uh, Mill Hinton and O.C. Johnson and uh, Phil Woods. And these names don't mean anything to people who don't know jazz, but these were just great, great players. And it was the night of a huge snowstorm in New York City. This was one of the first jobs I uh, entrusted to do on my own. So there had been this huge snowstorm, and the sessions were always booked for three hours, and you would, the norm was to do four songs in three hours. So uh, we got started because of this storm I'm over an hour late. So we had one more song to do, and it was a 2 to 5, 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock session. And A couple of minutes before 5, I said to the guys, you know, can we just go, uh, go on and finish this one song? And Everyone said, sure, sure, let's do it. But I hadn't realized that into the control room had snuck the union representative, this fellow who I shall call Bobby Greenfield, because that was his name, and um, we went one minute over five o'clock or a minute, two minutes. I don't know what it was. Very little. Right. And uh, to get this last tune, and he says to me, uh, you gonna <laughs> keep the guys for the extra hour, because he stammered. But I won't stammer anymore more in the story. Uh, keep the guys for the extra hour? And I said, no, Bobby, we do. You know, come on, come on. And then Barry Galbraith, who's an excellent guitar player, said, give the kid a break. Give the kid a break. It's his first session and what the hell. We don't care. And he says, "No, no, you got to pay the guys for the extra hour." And then, shortly after that, we were summoned. I was summoned. I didn't know who else would be there to the union trial board. Ouch! It, ouch! Yeah! Wow! I thought, "Oh, this is like <laughs> one of those uh, yeah, one of those courtroom scenes I've seen in movies." You know. Uh, 20, so I go there, and it's, right, right. It, it's me and Bobby Greenfield and Barry Galbraith, the guitar player, and a bunch of uh, union guys who. Uh, I mean, I say that uh, they were not. <laughs> Any musicians I'd ever heard of, they wanted falling asleep and picking their noses, and they were just doing nothing. They didn't care. So justice was swift justice because uh, after this hearing, I walked back to my office and there, postmarked, mailed the day before right. was the verdict of the hearing and my fine of fifty bucks. So they the decided lesson. to yeah. to move yeah. things along. They would decide that I was guilty before I. Even have a chance to defend myself, yeah. so that was my union skirmish, yeah.
1: so do you feel I, uh, do you feel that behind the desk is a better fit for you than in front?
2: Uh, do I feel that what
1: that behind the desk, behind the console, uh, producing as opposed to uh, you know in front with the instrument?
2: Uh, no, 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 quite the quite the contrary. I'd much yeah, rather be. You'd with rather the, in, Oh yeah, much instrument. rather be with the instrument. because I can conduct from out there and I can hear. But I'm a I'm a muse- an arranger and a conductor and a player. That's what I am, and, and we all can listen to the playbacks at the same time and decide what we think. I don't. They don't need me in the control room. To, uh, yeah, you spend I
1: mean, most of your career in the the studio with uh, with the musicians, with the players. Themselves. Yeah,
2: right. Right. yeah, usually I mean, it depends on the I mean, act. You know, if it's, a, if, it's a, money, if it's a right. Green and the Gills rock act, I might spend some more. You know, spend some time out in the studio trying to get their music together, and then go back in the control room to just get their balances together. and because if they're not used to being in the studio, it's a, it's a hard thing. You, headphones balance has to be just yeah. right in order to yeah. get them to play the right things. and yeah. You know, it's, it's tricky. But generally speaking, I would rather be out where the action is rather than watching and listening to the action through a pane of glass and some speakers.
1: Well, let's talk about what first makes your name, and that's uh, 1966 uh, Red Rubber Ball written by Paul Simon.
2: Yes, incidentally. I was uh, in my office, and a little cubicle, 10 by 10 cubicle with no windows. And uh, agents and managers and people like that and publishers would always make the rounds at producers' offices and all the record companies yeah, with demos
0: demo. right. mm-hmm.
2: of uh, you know, songs and artists. And I had heard a few of them, and, and uh, I was a little wary about jumping in and doing my first thing. But then this guy came through. And he said, his name was Nat Weiss. He said he was Brian Epstein's American associate. Those are the words he used and I my ears. Well, that's a big up because deal. I knew that Brian Epstein was <laughs> the Beatles' manager. Yeah, yeah. And so I listened, and it was a pretty good tune. It was called Red Rubber Ball, and it was done by this group that had no name. They were called the Fret Men or the, you know, something. They were a college band. And um, so I screwed up my courage, and I went into the boss, the head of a and and I said, can I have... $2,000 to go in and record this song. And he said, hey, kid, you know, take five, go ahead. Go ahead. So uh, wow. I went in and cut it and did a little arranging with it and uh, had a wonderful mixer named Freddie Cotero uh, who mixed it. And uh, it became a number two, or number two single. That's another
1: story. Yeah, um, because, well, there, there's something, uh, some auspicious reasons why it only remains at number two.
2: Yeah, first I'll say that, that that to hear that song come out of my car radio, out yeah, of the, the local yeah. rock and roll station, the first time, was a thrill that's never ever been matched for me. Having even working with world famous stars, it's never been uh, matched.
1: It's nothing like the first time. Yeah,
2: I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> In so many regards, right? <laughs> so um, it was number two with a bullet, you know, and, and at Billboard charts and. The bullet means you have to go to number one. There's no place to go. You can't go to one and a half. Yeah, this is a hot, hot record. Yeah, right. So I, we opened, we tore open the next week's Billboard magazine, and there I'm at number one was one. Yeah. "My Baby Does the Hanky Panky" yeah, by Tommy yeah. James and the Shandells.
1: Oh, yeah, Tommy James and the Shandells, Right. right.
2: So um, you know, I said, "Why did this happen?" And I found out later in reading Tommy James's autobiography, which I summed through without buying in Barnes and Noble. And I looked at red River ball, and I mean, looked looked up uh, my be just the hanky panky, and in the index, and it's uh, there it was, and I found out that uh, Tommy James, this record company, Roulette Records, had some kind of a relationship with, I well, we could call them the mob nice for guys. lack of any other reason. Yeah,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. And uh, apparently, we had a you know number two with a bullet, but the mob may have had more bullets, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> So they were, they were number 1 and they had come out of nowhere to well, be number 1 They passed the
1: right cash around basically too.
2: Maybe, I don't to, know. To
1: yeah, those things uh you know kind of happened uh, uh
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did, once again, this is just hearsay. I mean, can't say that they really had any affiliation, well, uh, you know, with any if there was any uh, hanky panky going on. I can't <laughs> say that for sure. <laughs>
1: Uh, but it seems pretty obvious. Uh, right, so now you're a known quantity with a certifiable hit. So how did things change for me? Uh, change for you? I mean, obviously, you know that moment of sitting in your car and and hearing the song come out of the record. But uh, professionally, I mean,
2: oh, well, Columbia, being new to rock and roll, started throwing acts at me. <laughs> you were the, <laughs> thinking, boy, well, this guy's you're the got, got the of he's, a rock Yeah, he's roll. got the secret. Of course, I didn't have any secret. I didn't know anything. But. Uh, the one of the first acts, let's see who they throw at me first, um, maybe it was Simon and Garfunkel, I'm not sure, but maybe some other acts that whose names are lost to history. But I did Simon and Garfunkel and then Leonard Cohen, and then uh, when I... Uh, they threw blood, sweat, and tears at me, Al Cooper said to me, uh, um, you know, you should be a freelancer. And I had no idea that there were such things as freelancers and that you could get a royalty. I didn't know what a royalty was. And uh, so Al convinced me to be
1: and go out on my own. And you, uh, you brought up Leonard Cohen. I want to talk a little bit about that. So you're asked to produce an album by a new artist, uh, a bit of a poet, and, and that is an unknown Leonard Cohen in 1967, right?
2: Yeah, a hell of a poet. Not a little, not a bit of a poet, a
1: hell of a poet. Yeah, of, of course. But, I mean, at that moment, he's still relatively unknown.
2: Yeah, he wasn't Robert Frost or uh, William Shakespeare at the time, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, and I think you add a to your title as well as producer on that first album, right?
2: Oh, I may have, but I was also the arranger on Red Rubber Ball. Every everything I've done, I get it's my fingers in being the arrangement. Yeah. But I did, I did do some arrangements on that album, and and uh, I, you know, I decided that since so much many of his songs were either about women or directed to women, that uh, it might be nice to have a female. Presence on that album, so my girlfriend at the time, Nancy Pretty, had been a singer with an, an ensemble, and uh, I got I wrote some parts out for her to sing, and she sang a lot of the counter melodies to Leonard's, uh, you know, vocals.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that album's now in the Grammy Hall of Fame. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I got a I got a certificate. <laughs> Yeah, from the huge. Grammy organization, yeah, uh, years later. Yeah, that's huge. And then uh, you also did Blood, Sweat & Tears' first album, as we just uh, spoke about with Al Cooper.
2: Yep, I did. And that was a great project because they were all wonderful players. They yeah, came from the top-notch
1: back. players that he'd put
2: together. Yeah. yeah. I didn't do any of the arranging for that album because uh, Freddie Lipsius, uh, who was their alto player, did most of the charts for that album.
1: Right. So I want to ask you about December 26th, 1966, uh, uh, the day you pick as the most important in rock and roll. So let's tell uh, our fans, the diggers, your theory.
2: Okay. It's a fact. It's not a theory. <laughs> okay. It's a theory. During that year.
1: Remember this is truth, lies, or hearsay.
2: This is truth, lies, or hearsay. or And I should also say and opinions. Uh, during that year, And I saw this because I was there. Mm. Columbia Records bought the Fender Guitar Company, which had been just a small company owned by Leo Fender up until that point. And they put out a huge advertising campaign uh, to promote guitars. And at the same time, the Beatles were hugely popular. Yeah. And um, so let me just hold on a second. This is also something that I'd like to just keep it orderly, and there's so much to say. So let me just find this here in this book. The Beatles, yeah, they were. The Beatles were hugely popular, and in this country, they were uh, sold by Capitol Records, yep. and all the other record companies were insanely jealous oh. of Capitol for having this Rightfully group. Of, so. yeah. yeah, they had no, and and they they because this was rock and roll and it was music for young people. The oldsters who the oldsters who ran the record companies had no idea how this came about, you know. So they all wanted their own groups. So. Um, they were casting about for the next Beatles and you might imagine that, well I know for sure that there are all these managers who had the ears they were, you know, managers like flies around a dead corpse in and, and record companies you know, they were just there all the time and so when uh, some of them went up to the heads of Columbia Records, the people with power and said, well I got the next four lads from Liverpool, there are, you know, four lads from from uh, San Diego,
1: yeah, and, or um, wherever, yeah,
2: or wherever. You know. They uh, they're just great. The girls love them at the high school dances. They look like the Beatles, they and all like that. Except the thing is that on January on January December twenty fifth of that year, under every Christmas tree, right. because of this incredible promotion for Fender guitars, beside the usual uh, baseball mitt and bicycle. For a boy, it wasn't a brand new Spanking Fender electric guitar. So here are all these young boys who had this electric guitar and they can try to be like the Beatles who had their choice of all, you know, screaming girls and fans and everything
1: like that and had all this power. Oh, it does and, better than being captain of the football team.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, pro- and probably a lot less just prone to injury.
1: <laughs> Blisters so, on my fingers, but sure.
2: Yeah, and they might step in a pool of uh, ripple and their electric guitar and get electrocuted. <laughs> that story you always hear. Right. Uh, so there they were, and so there were all these wannabe bands, you know, that that were that had happened. So the, the record company execs, and like in at Columbia, stuck him in the studio with people like me. Yeah,
1: and, and we that, had yeah, to make it's a whole set of new problems in the studio.
2: Yeah, we had to make silk purses out of sow's ears, yeah, yeah. and well, we were. Trying and trying. And it was a tedious process because um, perhaps the person who wrote the song really knew it pretty well, and maybe one other person, maybe the bass player or the drummer, could pick up their part okay, but the guitar soloist couldn't get his part together, and maybe some of the other players are having a hard time. We have to keep going back in over and over again to do take after take after take because it was just we were recording on two track, three track tape, you know, pretty simple take. Wow. And um, then some engineer came up with the... Oh, the only thing we could, the other thing we could do is we could, we could ping-pong back and forth between two different machines, you know, record some instruments on one machine and then put them back in another
1: machine. Yeah, but that degrades. Uh,
2: yeah. So there we were in the studio, and uh, it's just this tedious process of recording over and over again. When some engineer came up with the idea of multi-track recording tape, in which the people who knew their parts could play their parts, and then those parts would be stuck there on tape forever, and the people who didn't know their parts, like usually the guitar soloist, (laughs) could do take after take after take after take, and the other people could go home or else go into the control room and light up a doobie and giggle for the rest of the session, which is what often happened. So there we were, and we had this, this tape, and that solved that problem. But then this... A very interesting thing happened from that, and this is what really changed rock and roll. These lightly-talented bands needed that extra, those extra tracks to record on, but the people who were talented, like the Beatles, Simon & Garfunkel, the Beach Boys, etc., found that they had a use for these extra tracks. All of a sudden, they could add elements to their records, that would have been difficult to do earlier these these tapes were crying out for additions to their songs mm-hmm. so the, the the difference is obvious when you listen to like the beatles first album meet the beatles or which is just a, a recording of what they did live in clubs yeah, all much, around yeah, europe yeah, yeah or you know, in front of either. a microphone yeah. mm-hmm, in front mm-hmm. of a microphone but then you get to sgt pepper yeah it's it's layer upon layer upon layer of stuff, and, and it's a whole new art form. Yeah. this didn't exist before. I mean, it may have existed in isolation by you know uh, strange orchestras. What's that? There's that guy in, oh, who made uh, exotic albums in L.A. Not Martin Denny, but something like, some name like that. He, he did, uh, you know, like Sounds of the Jungle, that kind of, that, that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, rec- recordings were just, it all happened live in the studio. Yeah, it was but take, now take the
1: bandstand and put it into the studio, record it, put it on wax. and uh,
2: Right, right. But now we had the possibility of make, fabricating entirely new Sonic Adventures that didn't exist on stage and couldn't exist on stage, but only it could exist in, uh, on, on records and uh, coming out through speakers. And this whole new art form was born. And I, I, you could know, call it a more produced record if you want. There's probably a better name for it, but more produced records tells the whole story. Mm-hmm. And the first one that I did like that was uh, Simon and Garfunkel's bookends.
1: Right. Uh, so bookends. So yeah, you work with uh, Paul Simon on arranging some of the songs, uh, and, and I I know I I just got to say that America is like one of the greatest songs ever written and recorded. Uh, I I my, personally I cannot listen to that song without shedding a tear. Um, oh. but I, I don't think you worked on that one.
2: But you, I don't think so. I I mean, they were in the process of doing an album when this when I got assigned to them. They had. They were slow in putting the album out, and uh, they had just put out Parsley Sage, Rosemary, and Time. Mm-hmm. And so, Columbia was really anxious to get another piece of product from them. And so, they assigned me to them to try to, you know, push, shake them, all, their, um, mm-hmm. push them along. Mm-hmm. And I pushed them along a little bit, and we got along just great. And then. But they were still going slow, and um, so I'm not exactly sure what I did on the element. I know some of the things that I did, but I don't know well, all of them. Cause save was, the life I think of my any...
1: child you did. Uh, yeah, for sure, and, yeah. And, and there, I think, uh, is some of the first elements of synthesizers being used.
2: Right. Uh, Bob Moog, the guy yeah. who invented the synthesizer, came into the uh, 30th Street studio with these mattress-sized <laughs> yes. elements, you know, that were eventually became, you know, a computer chip, you know, a tiny little thing but they were Mm -hmm. huge at that point yeah that was the beginning of of one of the first instances of that kind of music other than theremins from you know generations earlier so um yeah so that's that um most where we were christian where were we just
1: uh bookends we were talking about bookends
2: yeah so anyway yeah yeah. there, there i was doing bookends and things were moving slowly and uh all of a sudden uh Columbia said, "Well, while you're doing that, would you produce uh, Leonard Cohen?" So I got involved in uh, Leonard's album. I think that's the sequence.
1: Okay, so it was it was working with uh, Paul Simon. Did he did he know you from uh, from Red Rubber Ball?
2: Paul, yeah. Paul was uh, you know there was it was a New York scene you know of uh, yeah. uh, folk rockies you know the guys in the circle Tom Dawes especially uh, and Paul were close. So I knew, I knew Paul from there a little bit, but I didn't get to know Paul and Artie until we actually started working together. And they were just great. I mean, they were just, you know, people talk about the friction between them, but when I was working with them, there wasn't any friction. It was, it was just, you know, they were pals. Yeah. And they were so comfortable on stage. They, when they stepped out on stage, it was just the same as when they were backstage. You know, they were just so comfortable. There, wasn't any, there weren't any nerves.
1: It was, they just did what they did, you know. So it was like a, just like being in a small room, no matter what the size of the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then um uh you know we, we we talked a little bit about janice and big brother at the top but but who got you that was albert grossman um and we're big proponents that if you want to make it big in the music biz you need somebody like uh like albert like a, you know like a peter grant or david geffen or irving azoff um what can you tell us a little bit about uh mr grossman
2: Okay, Albert was a powerhouse, of course. He had started out in Chicago as a club owner. Uh, I mean, I'd started a little where Albert exactly started out, but prior to coming to New York, he was a club owner of a club called the Gate of Horn in Chicago, a folky yeah. club. And uh, you know that movie Inside Llewellyn Davis that came out, I like, do yeah. 10 years ago so, that F. Murray Abraham portrays Albert, and when the star of the movie goes to. Audition for Albert. Uh, he he does Chicago, a beautiful right, right. in Chicago. He does a beautiful plaintive song, and, and the actor F. Marie Abraham says, "Frankly, I don't hear any money in it." You know, and that—that—that <laughs> that, that, oh, that was Albert. You know, I wrap mean, it up right there. Wow. Yeah. B- bottom line, <laughs> yeah. but but he was also um, a very uh, supportive man for his artists and. Uh, Took good care of his artists. But because he was so different, he was able to make some pretty good deals with the record companies. He was not a guy who, ever, who wore a suit in the midst of all the other people who wore a suit. He had a long gray ponytail before guys had ponytails, and, um, you know, dressed in jeans. And he was, but he was smart and uh, knew how to make a deal, how to, how to get things done, you know. So that was Albert. And, um, what had happened was I was uh, recommended to do this to help Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary Mm -hmm. out with this movie that he wasn't a movie yet but he had shot a bunch of footage and I was recommended by two different people from two different places to Peter and so we met and I did this movie with him and Albert uh, at the time was breaking up with his uh, prior musical uh, counterpart uh, John Cort and needed somebody to take his place, and so uh, that's when I got involved with Albert. One of the first things we did was to go out to, to San Francisco to hear Janice. I actually think the, the Gordon Lightfoot came before, I think Gordon Lightfoot's project came before
1: Janice. Yeah, because you do Gordon Lightfoot's first album as well, right?
2: Yeah. No, it wasn't his first, but maybe it was second or something oh. like that, but it was a wonderful album. I got a chance to do a lot of arrangements, a lot of strings and things, and so that was a good album.
1: And then through Albert, uh, you meet up with uh, Bob Dylan's backup band.
2: Yeah, that's true. I, I was working uh, actually through the movie with uh, I was doing with Peter Yarrow. We were in a house putting together this movie, making a movie out of just a bunch of raw footage. And um, there was this bleeding coming from outside. And it turned out it was the editor, Howard Hawke's birthday. And these guys knew Howard because Howard was a friend of Albert's and pals with Dylan. And had been on their latest tour, and so these the guy it was four out of five guys in the band. They were serenading him for his birthday, and uh, I was on the scene, and they were on the scene, and everyone knew that they wanted to make a record. They knew that I was a producer, so uh, that's how that sort of happened. Robbie Robertson was checking me out, and then he brought me up to hear the music that they were making, and I I checked that out, and turned out to be a perfect match. It was all very musical and not. your standard rock and roll, and, and and I was not your standard rock and roll producer, so it it worked out very well.
1: Yeah, you almost become like a sixth member of the band, so tell us about the first day you heard the group of guys that would soon just be called the band. Mm, um, I think it took well, a couple uh, of trips up there before you actually got to hear something, right? Yeah, well,
2: uh, yeah, that's true the The movie making was over I'd gone back to my house, my apartment in New York City And Robbie called me up a couple of times And the second or third time he let me hear the music And I went into the basement And there they were set up by the boiler in the basement And played me some of their songs And they were just wonderful, they were just great And of course, you know, history gets rewritten Here's this truth lies and hearsay thing When the basement tapes had their anniversary a few years ago I heard commentators on TV saying And there's Lee Van Helm and the band and the basement tapes. Well, Levon wasn't even there for the basement tapes. Levon showed up uh, the day before I did uh, in Woodstock.
1: Yeah, he, he he'd had been out on an oil rig, uh, kind of fed right. up, and uh, with the 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 Dylan tour, I think in in the UK, and said I'm 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 done, and uh, went out and became a an oil man uh, on the Louisiana <laughs> yeah. coast, and then, the, uh, they kind of slowly got him to come back, huh?
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, and. Um, so he, was, he came back, and Richard Manuel played the drums for all those basement tapes. So, yeah, so that was it, and I heard it, and it was great. And we started working together, and uh, everything that was on any of the records that we did together had to be approved by all of us. You know, as a
1: producer... Very much a democracy, then.
2: Yeah. As a producer, everything, and in all cases, everything gets filtered through a producer. Mm-hmm. You know, and so a producer doesn't mean a producer's going to stand his ground and say, we're doing it this way because I'm the producer. It's not that. It's just that everything gets, the producer has to listen to everything and, you know, give their opinion. And if it's, if it's the artist to whom you uh, go for, you know, the final word, then that's what the producer does. So, you know, when I listen to everything that they did. Just as I listen to everything everybody does, I have to form my own opinions of what I'm listening to and tell people what I think. And if they agree with me, fine. If they don't agree with me, fine. But that's part of my job is to tell them what I think as a producer, you know,
1: the truth part.
2: Yeah. I'm a person, my personal truth. It's not a total truth, but yeah.
1: And you worked with them for three years straight, right? This is, uh, yeah. One of, the, yeah. One of your longest collaborations. Uh, and that's, uh, their two first two albums, uh, you know, the, the incredible music from big pink and, uh, which was released in 68 and then the band, which was released in
2: 1969. Right. And then, you know, some years after that, the last waltz, So.
1: Well, we'll get to that. So, but okay. it, the, uh, both uh, are, are amazing classics that literally create uh, the very popular now Americana sound.
2: The, wasn't the Americana when they were no. there. Well, no, no, no. I mean, they, they
1: really reached back into all facets of uh, America. They
2: music. did. They had this uh, almost reverence for uh, music of the past, From whether it was uh, early rock and roll or rockabilly or blues or bluegrass music or country music or Stephen Foster music from the century before or early jazz. They just sort of cherry-picked what They liked out of all that stuff. They weren't listening to the radio. Like Paul and Artie uh, would listen to the radio all the time to to see how they were were doing compared to other things that were happening. But the guys in the band didn't care.
1: They They didn't care what was on the the radio. They
2: they, well, sometimes some things were good. Some things were good. You know, we we you know we would get turned on to certain records that were really great. But it wasn't that wasn't what they were paying attention to. They were trying to find their place in this continuum of great American classical music. You know, which is jazz or rock and roll, whatever you want to call it, popular music.
1: Yeah, pretty good for a group mostly made up of Canadians.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> there's, uh, there's only that line, that borderline, there's no difference yeah, between Canada the United course, States. Of course, Except that they don't have a fucked up president. Okay, <laughs> so we'll leave politics
1: out of that. <laughs> we'll, we'll table that for later. Uh, <laughs> uh, in the book, this seems to be your most fondest time in the music business, or at least when you seemed totally and completely in love working with these guys.
2: Yeah, I was totally and completely involved, in but I can't, I can't say it was my most passionate passionate time. No, I can't. I, whatever. There were so many albums that I worked with. I'm, I'm so in it for the music, Christian, that uh, I can get involved in, in uh, a rendition or an arrangement of Happy Birthday and get totally passionately involved. It's, wow, all right. Yeah, it's not so much... Uh, the guy, you know, working with the guys in the band was... Since I lived and I moved up to Woodstock then and lived there and saw them all the time and hung out with them all the time, it was familial, you know. So it was that kind of involvement, and because the music was great, that made it even that more rich. But I can't say that it was. uh, It wasn't
1: the the moment that where you look back and say, "Wow, that's." I mean, working with those four guys uh, was just. Uh, absolutely amazing, but, uh, or, or excuse me, those five guys, uh, but, uh, they, uh, y- y- as you said, y- y- you feel that way with pretty much every project you, you go to, you get on.
2: Yeah, unless it's a bummer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we won't talk about those. Uh, we only got so much time. Uh, all right, all right. So if you, if you sit down at the piano, do you, do you have a favorite band song that you just have to play?
2: Um well I I'll play the ones that I can because want once in a while, I do some I do shows of my own every once in a while I go out yeah. and give talks and play stuff and I'll play the ones that I can play like uh, Unfaithful Servant and Lonesome Susie those are like uh, you know pianoistic songs that I don't require a band to have them you know and play them so those when you ask me what I'd play of the bands if I sit down on the piano there would be those, but one of my f- favorite ones off the records, I can say Tears of Rage, we can talk about it now, King Harvest, you know, those are some of my favorites.
1: Just so many. Yeah, just so many. So, uh um, you know, we talked a little bit about the fact that, uh, you know, the multi-tracking allowed, uh, you, know, uh, you know, any four guys from Ipswich uh, to walk in the studio and, uh, and record. But that's not these guys. These guys are a little bit more like the Beatles in that they had done their 10,000 hours with Ronnie Hawkins and Dylan. So that must have been a real joy to, to work with.
2: Yeah. Yeah, because the, the raw materials were such more, so much more interesting. Even even if they hadn't played together for years, their individual talents were so good uh, that it was interesting. I mean, the songs that we did on these albums were not songs that they had done on the road for years. They hadn't done any of them. They'd been a backup band for Ronnie Hawkins or Bob Dylan. All these songs were totally new. Yeah, the so songs we, we,
1: but, but as a group, as a working unit, they had, uh, you know. Yeah,
2: but, but it's not the same as the, the Beatles because the, the, they weren't playing exactly the same parts. For years, and then stepping in front of a microphone. Oh, that's they, the, a good point. Talent, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the talent was, yeah,
1: those tight harmonies that the Beatles. Right, had, the talents were there
2: to be right. to be the talents were there to be applied to the songs, yeah. as needed. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Huh. So you're up in Woodstock, and uh, you don't go to the big concert that they have there.
2: No, I didn't go to the big concert. What happened was, I knew the concert was happening, and then uh, it was close to my house. You know. Yeah, half an it, hour it away. Down,
1: you had access and the the band was playing there.
2: Yeah, well, there was a lot of people playing there. I wasn't too anxious to go because I'd seen a lot of these bands <laughs> anyway, but, I, you know, here it was. It was getting talked about, so it was a half an hour away. I get to within a couple of miles of the festival and there's a roadblock and uh, somebody says, uh, I said, well, you know, I know some of these people. I'm in this business. I started throwing my old name drop stuff around. And they said, well, go to the Holiday Inn and there you can, uh, that's the rallying point for people who are involved. So, My wife and I went over there, and um, I bumped into a rock-and-roll limo driver I knew, John Fisher, who had driven us around a few times. And uh, he said, yeah, I'll drive you up to the heliport, which was just uh, some farmer's field where the top of a hill had been bulldozed flat. And uh, sure enough, there were helicopters taking people into the festival. I said, oh, that's pretty cool. And uh, so there were four seats for passengers in the helicopter, and we got the uh, tickets for seats one and two. Another couple in got seats three and four, and then the, the blades started whirling around, and all of a sudden the ambulance comes tearing up to the helicopter, Red Cross Ambulance, and they said, uh, so you that couple in seats three and four, you have to leave because we have to send emergency medical supplies into the festival. So at the same time, I'm looking off to the west, where our weather comes from, because I live here, and I see these huge black thunderheads up in the sky, and I hear that these emergency medical supplies are going into a place where it's going to be a huge storm, and I said to the seats three and four, you guys can have our seats, we're going home.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we went home. You missed the best, yeah. huh? Yeah.
2: yeah, it was somewhat yeah. mud fest, and we were out of power for a week, and, uh, you know, there you
1: go. Do you regret missing it?
2: Nah. I've seen enough concerts. I, I, I don't go out that much. I only, you know, and, uh, you know, rock and roll is not my favorite music by any means. It's way down in the list, mm-hmm. which is why I make an interesting rock and roll producer. Cause I bring things it's to, to a project right. that, that people don't think of, you know, I mean, I listen to jazz. I listen to Brazilian, uh, sambas. I, I listen to, uh, blues, and uh, like that, you know. So in
1: 1970, you decide to pursue a music career yourself. How did that happen?
2: Well, I had a bunch of songs uh, that I've been writing for years, and uh, uh, after working with a band, and, uh, you know, lots of people were making their own albums at that point, and so, oh, uh, well, actually, Paul Simon <laughs> told me. He said, I played some songs for him. He said, John, you know, you're an artist, which was, you know, like a great thing to hear or The Kiss of Death, <laughs> so uh, right. Right. I decided to make an album, Albert got me a deal with uh, Warner Bros., and I made an album. Album that got critically acclaimed, but didn't sell too much. And uh, then I made another one for Warner's after that. And then 15 years went by and I made a couple for some Japanese labels that were sold here. I think I've done five or six solo albums over the years.
1: Yeah, some fun music. Now you also go out on the road with Taj Mahal, which must have been fun, huh? <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, I did the two tours with Taj. And, um, even now these days, whenever he's in the area, I'll drop by and sit in with him because, uh, that was wonderful. When I first, uh, here's, here's what happened. When, uh, Janice was doing her recording in. uh, we were doing that album, Cheap Thrills. We did some of it in New York and we did some of it in LA. And when I was in LA, I was also producing the electric flag for Albert. And I was doing two albums at once, electric flag in the afternoon and Janice at night. (laughs) And so Janice comes uh, waltzing into uh, into our electric flag session. and She says to me, Hey, you, which is what she called me, (laughs) how come uh, you're playing piano on their album and not on my album, Motherfucker, which is another name she used for me? And uh, I said, well, because, you know, I'm sort of filling the gap because they lost their piano player. And that's, and this is, you know, and you have a band that's already tied in the university. She says, well, you're playing on my album. So we go into the, that night we go in and we do a song called Turtle Blues, and it's a blues. And she asked me to play the blues Now. I didn't know much about playing the blues at the time, so I played something that was eh, adequate. But people come up and they say, Oh, I love your solo on Turtle Blues, but it's not really good blues playing, you know. I mean, uh, um, so when, when I when I got the opportunity, the same day that Janice came in, this is interesting, the very same day that Janice came in to that uh, electric frag session, Taj had come in, and I, I knew who he was, and he knew who I was. We didn't know each other. And he uh, called me up uh, sometime later and said, would you like to join my band and go for a tour of Europe? And I thought about it for about a half a second and said, you betcha. <laughs> and I went, and in that band was uh, Jesse Edwin Davis, the great late uh, gu- uh, guitar player who played with Taj in the first place. And my buddy Billy Rich, who's Taj's bass player from then until now, was just one of the best bass players, electric bass players I could imagine. And uh, so that's it. And I went on a couple of tours with Taj and then, we remain friends. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Now, you're still a producer. You, you, you know, while you're making your own albums as well and, uh, or touring, uh, you, uh, you did albums with Seals and Croft, Al Cooper, a few others. And then in 1976, you're back in the band for one last, uh, shindig.
2: Yeah. This was, you know, Robbie's idea was to do a, um, concert where the guys would back up everybody that, uh, that everyone and all of their favorite artists. But they would be the backup band. But they uh, yeah they we're
1: talking, we're talking need- like Dr. John Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Muddy Fucking Waters, Ringo, Stephen Stills, Paul Butterfield, uh, Clapton, and Dylan, Neil Diamond. Uh, wow,
2: yeah, quite a bunch of people. Yeah, so uh, they needed an interpreter, sort of, sometime because Garth Hudson's the only one of them who reads the music, and the, some of these artists they brought in were had complicated arrangements, and they had to be taught to the guys in the band in a hurry, and so they brought me in to be the interpreter. And I would uh, be there for the rehearsals. We rehearsed a half a day with each one of the artists before we went up to San Francisco for the concert. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I would figure out what the guys were, what the guys needed to play, and help them through it like that. And, uh, and when it came down to the concert itself, wh- whatever they didn't know, I was standing in the foot of the stage and I'd throw hand signals to them, things like that. And I, I played a little bit at the concert too. So. That's, that was the last waltz, and that was just great. And then three years ago, I got for the last waltz anniversary, 45th anniversary, I got a call from some people in New Zealand, the producer in New Zealand, saying they were going to replicate the last waltz concert in New Zealand with local New Zealand talent. And Garth was going to go on over, and would I go over and be the musical director of that? And when I found out that it was not somebody's pipe dream, but it was a real deal, I said, you bet, I've never been to New Zealand. What a kick. Ah, yeah. So that was a lot of fun. And I realized in that even though I've always, you know, felt a little frustrated working on other people's music, I realized that I had a value as somebody who could be a facilitator and put music together and uh, coordinate that kind of stuff. It was good to, to get that reinforced, but it took me a long time to realize that years in fact
1: so well you, you found yourself i mean it's uh you know you're, you're you know you uh, well, we've just gone through quite a few classic albums uh that will stand that have stood the test of time and will continue to do so but uh, i want to i want to ask a little bit about the last waltz as a concert film i do think the last waltz is like the best rock and roll concert film ever put to celluloid uh but you say that there's a bit of showbiz going on. There's a little bit of trickery on the back end. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. I say that it's not a film of a concert. It's a film about a concert. Yeah. Because, um, you know, we discovered uh, when it was done that it could use some touching up. First of all, we added some artists who weren't there at the concert. Uh, yeah,
1: Staple Singers, Amy Lou Harris. Staple
2: Singers and Emmylou Harris, because Robbie realized that he didn't have. Uh, he was pretty heavy on the white male. Factor and a little light and the other elements, you know. Yeah, yeah and so and then uh, Richard had hit a, quite a few cracks on the piano, and Rick was playing a fender, uh, not a fender, but a, a fretless bass that tended to go a little out of tune when he played. Robbie always liked to uh, improve his solos, and uh, Garth never missed an opportunity to, to uh, touch up what he's doing. The only one who wouldn't touch anything was Levon. So everything on that last waltz that had to do with Levon is totally live from the show, but every, but the other stuff. And the, and the horns were mixed up uh, and were balanced badly, so they had to be redone. So that's it. But, it, I mean... Uh, You've
1: totally changed my Thanksgiving, because uh, I, I watch that uh, movie every Thanksgiving. Oh, good. Well, hey, it's a big, big moment. And, you know, there's a curtain in a stage for a reason, as you uh, illustrated uh, with your first job in the strip joints. Mm-hmm. you know you, you get a different perspective behind the performer you uh you get to see their bare asses and uh, yes it's true know. so uh but uh up front you know we want the illusion and the fantasy so so what but it's,
2: uh, but it's a it's, it's a wonderful album i'm not saying that it's oh, isn't a wonderful album and, and as far as if you look at the uh movie you get a real feeling of what a much more feeling of the honesty of it because but if you also look at the movie and you compare what you're hearing to the fingers on the guitar and the way the ma- ma- mouths move, you'll see that uh, there's some lip syncing going on and some guitar syncing going on.
1: I I did exactly that uh, after reading uh, that in the in the book. Uh, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, where else do you get to see Lawrence Ferlinghetti at a at a rock concert? So that's true. Uh, all right. So what has John Simon been up to these days?
2: Oh golly, what have I been up to? Well, uh, my wife and I. Uh, Right together, we've written a play based on her growing up in Las Vegas, watching the A-bomb tests as a family outing, and another one about a that's musical. That's a show. Yeah, no, it's a comedy, actually. It's really funny. It's a throughout piece for three women. And uh, then we've written a musical uh, about a traveling medicine show years ago that's very much parallels what's going on today in a lot of ways, and it's also <gasps> wacky and funny. That's called The Amazing Sunshine Traveling Medicine Show. Wow, that sounds and, fun! And any, yeah, they're both a lot of fun. And if any of your listeners out there have oh twenty or thirty thousand bucks, they want to plow into the next production of it, we'd love to accept it. Um, Are you listening,
1: folks? Yeah. Diggers?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Contact Christian, and he'll get to me. Um, and then uh, for the past twelve years, I've been playing every single Thursday night, except in the winters when it's too cold up here. At a joint in town uh, with a jazz trio, and so I've become a better piano player and uh, I write an average of an arrangement a week to bring in for our trio and I got some great players a bass player and drummer and um, rich Syracuse and jeff Siegel and uh, we have a lot of fun doing that and that's you know that, that's it and people and people you know call me up and or send me emails and say you know would you work with me or you know and sometimes i'll uh, if it's just you know one song or something that turns me on, I'll do it. And but generally they say you know we sound just like the band. Well, there already was a the band, so it doesn't really make any sense to do yeah. that. Yeah.
1: Those those days are behind us here. Right? Yeah. Hey, have you ever thought about making a board game?
2: <laughs> you know something that your <laughs> listeners don't know unless they took my book. That's right.
1: Um, they got they got to go and buy the book now.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I made a board game. It's included in the book called How to Make a Record and. uh uh, actually, it's available as a poster as well,
1: Christian. You didn't even know that. Uh, we will talk about that when we're done. Okay. All, All right, right. Last question: uh, If you could uh, del Seno, uh, would you and where?
2: If I could go back, uh, would I and where? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's cool being in this, in my seventies because I have that. Uh, I can look back, but I, I just you know wrote this couple down recently. It says. I used to want to wake up with the sun, but now I see the beauty in the setting sun, which is uh true i love I love sunsets I'm at this age you know where sunsets are quite beautiful, oh, yeah. so yeah so what i- would i want to go back sure i would want to go back to being i mean I never actually left being sixteen years old I am actually sixteen years old in a seventy seven year old body uh, I believe it you mean do you oh, yeah, yeah i mean i knew I knew kids in kindergarten who were already seventy years old, yeah. you know yeah it depends on uh who you are but I I mean that's where I am and I have to learn how to be a little bit more thoughtful to people and kind to people because I've always been a wise ass too, and uh, I've been working on that lately because that's really important
1: Bart Simpson in his 70s (laughs)
2: Joe no, I'm, I'm trying not to be that, Christian. I'm trying to be a good guy. I'm trying not to hurt <laughs> people. I'm trying to be generous and open-hearted open, open like hearted and fun. everything.
1: You know, it just likes to have fun. Mm, yeah, well,
2: it's John... okay as long as you don't hurt anybody else.
1: <laughs> exactly. John yeah. Simon, thank you so much for being on Deeper Digs and Rock.
2: Thank you, Christian. It was my pleasure.
1: All right, before we go, thanks again to John Simon for sharing his story with us. And, of course, thank you for listening, for letting us be a part of your rock and roll day. John is a very interesting guy who ended up having a very interesting life. At first, you can see why suits like uh, Goddard Lieberson or Mitch Mitchell would like John. He has pedigree. He's a good musician and a good man. But as we know now... He's really an artist, a a trickster, and a real bohemian by nature. He wasn't really a suit. It just didn't really fit him. He himself isn't a born musician. I think that is obvious. Once again, the book is Truth, Lies, and Hearsay, a memoir of a musical life in and out of rock and roll by John Simon. It's available at johnsimonmusic.com and all the usual online booksellers. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs and Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Keep up the rockin', and please stop by again real soon. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and
2: incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play,
1: and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.